following message was recorded at Antioch Presbyterian Church, an historic and charter congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, ministering to upstate South Carolina since 1843. Come and visit us at the crossroads of Greenville and Spartanburg counties. Experience our past and be a part of our future. For more information, visit AntiochPCA.com. Where do you think the most brutal place is in a pitched battle? Talking about particularly conventional warfare. You have two armies spread out on a battlefield and they're fighting each other. Where is the most brutal place in that battle? You might think the front lines, in the trenches. Those are certainly brutal places. But I want to suggest that the most brutal place in connection to a pitched battle is the field hospital. The field hospital. Think about it. That's a very brutal place. In June 1864, outside of Petersburg, Virginia, Union forces were assaulting Confederate supply lines along the Weldon Railroad. And during the fighting, a certain Union cavalryman from West Philadelphia was mortally wounded. According to the government-issued death certificate I have in my possession, he succumbed to his fatal injuries in a Confederate field hospital after a day of what I can only imagine was awful, even unbearable, brutal physical suffering and torments. That man was my great-great-great-grandfather, Abraham Groff. He was one of 360,222 Union soldiers who died in the war between the states, one of 618,222 American fatalities. The historical record tells us nothing more about my distant grandfather Groff's experience in that field hospital. I have no real or certain idea of what kind of spiritual care he might have received on his uh, death cot. Certainly wasn't a death bed. Um, but today in our passage, we have an historical account with a lot of detail from a very different field hospital during a very different war in a pitched spiritual battle and conflict featuring awful physical suffering. In the course of his gospel record of Jesus' life and ministry, Matthew includes this account of faith, spiritual struggle, prayer, parental desperation, and earnest discipleship as one of several vignettes in Matthew 16 and 17, pairing together the glory of Christ with the suffering of Christ. What we're considering this morning is paired to what we will consider next time in my next sermon uh, there in the last two verses which I read. But today from Matthew 17, 14 through 21, I want to highlight the lesson of discipleship which Christ the master discipler our captain and our spiritual warfare gives to his followers. Namely, that those called to follow Christ must take him at his word by faith. Those called to follow Christ must take him at his word by faith. We'll consider this under two headings, just following the, the natural presentation of the, the text as we have it in the first incident, that, that public scene after the Mount of Transfiguration episode, you have this scene where we see the peril of unbelief, the peril of unbelief. And then in the second incident in private, as Jesus uh, counsels with his disciples and gives them private instruction, we see Christian faith in action. 
So starting with the peril of unbelief in the public episode and then Christian faith in action in the, the private instruction that's given in response. Uh, in this public episode, there are really three things going on. You have a, a problem that's presented. You have then the spiritual problem explained and diagnosed and then the Christian solution that Christ our Savior gives to that spiritual problem related to what has been presented to him. Uh, look at verses 14 to 16 with me. We'll start there. When they came to the crowd, remember Jesus, Peter, James, and John coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord or Sir, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. So in this presentation problem, or the problem as it's presented to us, we have two relevant details, don't we? Uh, a boy is tormented by physical distress uh, and afflicted by demonic attack as well. Like Job, he's suffering aggravated suffering. It's not just that he's uh, suffering a physical problem of epilepsy or something like that. Sometimes it's translated that way. But there's a spiritual dimension to it. It's made more clear in Mark's gospel account of the same episode. There's a demon tormenting this boy and aggravating his physical condition. That's even made clear to us in Matthew's gospel by the fact that he doesn't simply fall on the ground, but his falls are purposefully directed into the fire and into the water. The demon's aggravating the physical condition which is plaguing this boy. And then what's the second part of the problem that's presented here by this man coming to Jesus? The disciples could not cure him. Now in Galatians chapter 2, in a polemical context, uh, Paul refers to Peter, James, and John as the pillars of faith. So the pillars were removed from the, the group of disciples and the other guys who were there. They just couldn't do it. What is going on here? This is the problem that's presented to us. And so this desperate father brings the boy to Christ for help. Having not found help where he was hoping to find it, he brings the boy to Christ. Now, wouldn't you do the same thing? You go to doctors uh, and your child is suffering, or perhaps you're suffering, and you go to the, the first set of doctors, they can't figure it out. What do you do? Well, you find another doctor. Isn't that the case? And that's what this man does here. Uh, this painful sensation, this phenomenon that he sees and encounters in his son's life, where his boy is afflicted and tormented, uh, this desperate symptom, it may yield one of any number of diagnoses. And so he's seeking for a competent physician to figure out what's going on and to heal his son. And wouldn't you do the same thing? Well, even in our spiritual maladies, this is the case. You bring the problems to the one whom you know can address them. You bring your spiritual afflictions, your maladies, your suffering to the great physician for help. And Matthew's comment on this man's posture seems to suggest to us that this is an approved example for us 
to go to the Lord in prayer in all our distresses. Matthew Henry puts it this way, a sense of misery will bring people to their needs. Exactly right. A sense of misery will drive you to your knees in prayer. As long as you are certain that he who is listening and who hears you in prayer is able to address those needs. Now, this is certainly the case in our passage today. And it's certainly the case for us parents when we consider the situations that our children face, some of which we're well aware of, others of which we're largely ignorant of. We go and we bring their situation to the Lord in prayer. You make another connection to Job. You thought you were going to get away from Job this week, but no. Um, to make another connection to Job, this is what the righteous servant of God does, doesn't he? In Job chapter 1, one of the marks, the signals of Job's righteousness is that he would go to the Lord in prayer for his children in case they had sinned. And so too we pray for our children, bring their situations to the Lord. Now as you do so, be mindful of this. This will motivate you in your prayers. Be mindful that Jesus as demonstrated in our text here, is willing and able not only to receive you and to hear you out and even to diagnose the problem, but he's willing and able to provide the cure, as we shall see. The great physician is always available to make an appointment and to meet to address your ills. In fact, there's no month-long waiting list to get treatment from Jesus. He's ever and always available. So what is the problem that he diagnoses? Look at verse 17. The situation has been presented to him, and Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Now, this is fascinating. Is he castigating the Father for his lack of faith? Is he castigating the disciples for being unable to heal the boy? Or... As we know from Mark's gospel, there are scribes there who are seeing an opportunity to take a dig at Jesus and his disciples. Is he castigating the crowds? Because we know even from earlier Matthew's gospel, if the people are unbelieving, he will not work many miracles in their midst. The power will not flow. So whom is he addressing? Whoever it is, whomever it is. The point here is that Jesus is diagnosing the true nature of the problem. He's getting an accurate read on what is taking place, what is transpiring in the life of this little boy. The problem is one of unbelief and of perversion. Unbelief and of perversion. Psalm 95 verse 9. God through the psalmist says, When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. In the wilderness, what was the problem of the Israelites? They were unbelieving. Jesus has already worked all these miracles in his earthly ministry, even raising a child from the dead, healing lepers, healing people from far away, sight unseen, healing people immediately in front of him. He's done all kinds of miracles, and yet there is still this demand to to produce proof that you are who you say you are. They're unbelieving. And this unbelief then dovetails into, leads to what he calls here perversion, twistedness. Deuteronomy 32, verse 20, we read it. 
He said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. Unbelieving and perverse, they go together. You cannot separate them. That's the problem here, the spiritual problem that's going on. Like Moses in Exodus 32, when he went up on the mountain away from the people for a relatively short period of time, Jesus goes away and he comes back and he sees wild unfaithfulness, what Moses characterizes as idolatry in the Song of Moses. Spiritual harlotry and whoredom, going after other gods, forgetting who it is that God is to them, that he's faithful and true and provides all that they need. He recognizes the spiritual problem here of inexcusable spiritual immaturity, a lack of confidence and security in God and his word. What is the doctor's diagnosis? It's worse than perhaps the father even expected when he came asking for help. Yes, Christ is exasperated, and this is a sigh of exasperation and frustration, but his response here in verse 17 to this situation is much more a wise diagnosis of a problem than it is an expression of frustration. I think we tend to read through this passage and think, wow, Christ our Lord is very frustrated. And though that may be true, what he's saying is actually a diagnosis of a spiritual problem. Remember. Remember how I cast this scene? It's a field hospital scene in a pitched spiritual battle being waged against the forces of darkness. The disciples who had remained behind during the transfiguration episode were quick to forget their orders when confronted with a direct assault by a powerful demon aggravating the torments of a little boy. He had told them in, ver in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, when sending them out on their initial mission, that they were empowered to cast out demons. And when I preached that text, I said that empowerment, that, that charismatic grace that was given to them, it continues throughout their earthly ministry, even through the apostolic age in the apostolic church after his ascension. But they had forgotten this. They had begun to doubt that he had actually given them what he said he gave to them. And so when confronted with this direct attack, this onslaught from the enemy, their faith began to flounder. Now, how about you? When you run up against particular difficulties, the breakdown of a marriage, the rebelliousness of children, the losing of a job, uh, poverty, difficulty in work, health challenges, do you forget the promises of God? in his commandments and his orders to the Christian disciple? And does your faith flounder? Do you begin to doubt that he actually will preserve you? That he will grant you the way of escape in the time of temptation? That he will uphold your spirit and shine the light of his grace upon you even when thick clouds of darkness are swirling around? Do you think that you're prepared to face hostility? Perhaps you haven't run into one of these earth-shattering, life-shattering uh, difficulties, but are you preparing now to face them when they come, before they shall come, in one way, shape, or form, or another? How do you prepare for the hostility? 
for the direct attack. Take note that the key to preparation is reminder. Reminding yourself of God's word. Being reminded of the word of God. Remind yourself of God's promised graces to his people. Namely, holiness. A way out of temptation. Perseverance. Endurance. Strength against the evil one in the evil day. Wisdom in the midst of a confused and perverted generation in a foolish world. And then love for the brethren even when you have every reason to despise those around you. We know this. We know that God takes delight in his people as they hold fast to his word in hope and in faith. The Bible is very clear about this. In 1 Kings 15, verses 4 and 5, as the kings of Israel are are falling into greater and greater depravity and faithlessness, what is said, but for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. This is a comment not on David's merits, but on David's faith, keeping the word of God. God took delight in that and upheld for David a witness and a son in Jerusalem. Psalm 147 verse 11 says, The Lord favors, we might say, delights in those who favor fear him, namely who keep his word, those who wait for his loving kindness, have confidence in his grace. And 149 verse 4 says, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. Even in his rewards, even in his favor, God is so gracious to us. Can you wrap your mind around this, that, we can, that God can take delight in us and that he does? Even as we sin and sin grievously, when we return to him in faith and hold fast to his word and seek his face, he delights in you. Therefore, be reminded of that word to hold fast to it. In Christ, his grace is sufficient and his graces these gifts for particular circumstances of great difficulty are promised to us for our good and for his glory now we see a picture of that at the end of verse 17 into 18 as christ gives his solution as he delivers the cure to this little boy there's two steps here look at the end of verse 17 we read bring him here to me there's step one And then step two in verse 18, Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him and the boy was cured at once. The first step is simple. Bring the boy to Christ. Bring him to Christ. And then the second step, the application of Christ's word of rebuke, which is a sufficient, effectual cure having its result. Christ, a great physician, doesn't stop at diagnosis. In verse 17, he continues on. He provides the perfect treatment. He delivers the effectual cure. Expect that as his word is preached to you and to your children, and as the Spirit applies that word to your hearts, that there will be saving effects. Expect it. Expect it, because such shall be the case for all God's people. Our God is a gracious and a merciful God. That's the picture that's being given to us in these verses. He makes known to us our sin. He makes known to us the defects in our faith and in our lives in order to remove them from us, 
from His people and then to heal us that we might then be strengthened in the inner man. To foster this expectation of the grace, there's something that, that is very helpful for you to do. Not merely to hear the words, not merely to read the words on a, on a prescribed plan, but to meditate upon the words, to chew on them, to mull over them, to turn them over in your mind. I got a text from one of our families this week asking about this passage. I was so encouraged to know that there is preparation going on in the midst of the flock. And I hope that in the week to come, you will mull over what you've heard and turn it over in your mind. And as you go through your annual Bible reading plan, that you'll pay attention to what you read and think, how does this apply to me? Why is it that I need to hear this right now? That I need to read this Word of God right now? Meditating on the Word is that way to Foster this expectation of God's grace through the ministry of Christ's word. Christ's ministry of his word to you. Meditate on his power, his ability to do all things. Meditate on his authority to command even the forces of darkness away. Meditate on his kindness, his compassion, even to this little boy. Jesus doesn't forsake him because of the unbelief of those around. No, he still yet heals this child. Meditate on the purposeful mission that tells us that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And Christ's word in our passage effectually cures this tormented child of Israel by doing what? Rebuking the demon who was afflicting the lad. John tells us in 1 John 3.8, this is God's word, Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Lay hold of that and expect him to do so in all your circumstances. Now, if there is power in the word as it is declared to us, then what are you doing to meditate upon it? Christ stopped at nothing. He stopped not even at the cross to secure for us our salvation, to show us the love of the Father for sinners and to make known to us his gospel. He spent three years crawling around in the dust of Palestine for what purpose? to showcase the glories of the grace of God in him. This should arrest our attention. The lengths to which Christ went to make known to us the will of God for our salvation. It should inspire then our thoughtful meditation on his grace and power. Tonight we're going to Fairview. I'll be giving the charge to the minister. At the last installation service in which Dr. Piper and I participated, we were at Roebuck. And I gave the charge to the congregation. And one of the challenges I laid before the people at Roebuck, and I lay before you now, is to, is to esteem the gathering of the saints in the assembly of the righteous as the highlight and high point of your week. It should be far more significant to you to hear the word read and preached in this context than it is even to go to your favorite seminary class during the week or as it is to go to that playoff game or to go and, and, and watch that highly anticipated movie or new TV show or whatever it is or even to see your children and grandchildren in a family meal. This, my friends, not because of who I am or who Dr. Piper is or whatever, but because of who Christ is, this is where we receive the grace of God. Do we esteem it as we ought? And do we then meditate upon what we receive? 
At the close of this public incident, the scene changes. As it frequently does in Matthew's Gospel, it changes into private instruction of the disciples. Private instruction of the disciples. And we see in verses 19 to 21, faith in action. Not just any old faith, but Christian faith in action. Christian disciples are to have Christian faith, which is an active, powerful thing that God gives us and works in us. Again, considering three things from just these few verses, the disciples present a dilemma to Jesus, and he explains to them really what is the nature of their dilemma. And then he explains to them the nature of faith in addressing their problem. And then finally, in verse 21, and I'll explain the little brackets in the New American Standard. Or if you have the ESV, it's not even there. I'll explain what's going on. But in verse 21, he tells us how to strengthen our faith then. So picking up at verse 19, look at it with me. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. We might say, because of your incredulity. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. What is the disciples' dilemma? What's their problem? How come they could not do what they were asked to do? Even though they had seen it done before, even though they had done it before in Matthew chapter 10. Why couldn't they do it? Jesus basically says it's because they were unbelieving, but he uses a milder term. I think he's being tender, he's being kind, he's being gentle with his disciples in his instruction. He says, because of your, your incredulity, because of the littleness of your faith. You know, even believers, even strong believers, can have moments of faithlessness without falling into rank apostasy or backsliding. Jesus isn't saying because you're unbelievers and you need to repent. No, he's saying because you're weak believers and you must repent and be reminded of what it was I've done for you and what I've said to you. To develop the medical illustration a bit further than we have up to this point, um, these men, these disciples, they're in a medical residency program. Uh, they're not just interns anymore. That's the first year of uh, your medical school kind of program, but now they're residents. They're in the hospital. They're working with the attending physician to care for actual patients. They're not just observing. They're actually administering treatment where it's appropriate, but they couldn't figure out how to treat a particular patient. Nine of them couldn't figure it out, perhaps more. So they ask their instructor. They ask the attending physician, the great physician in this case, what happened? And his answer is at once gentle and life-changing as he corrects their course, as he continues their training, as he builds them up and prepares for their deployment into their ministries around the world. Before we proceed, this interaction gives us a valuable example of something. How ministers, parents, other people in leadership positions in the church, Christian organizations or elsewise, uh, should address their struggles and their failures? How should we deal with the difficulties that inevitably arise when we can't do or produce what it is we rightly expect according to God's Word? What do you do when you can't think of the right things to say to your children or you can't think of 
of, of how to minister to that congregant in his difficult spiritual challenges. Or you can't figure out how, uh, how to preach a particular passage. Oh, Lord, you said you would give me wisdom. How come I'm not getting the wisdom that I need for this situation? What do you do? Well, you know that something went wrong. You know something went wrong perhaps with how you've handled something or someone or some text. You bring that challenge, that felt failure, bring it to the Lord again in prayer. But this time, I want to emphasize what attends prayer. Listen to Christ. Listen for the voice of Jesus Christ. What do I mean by this? I'm not asking you to channel Jesus like some kind of medium or spiritist or some kind of gobbledygook like that. No. If before we emphasize the posture of the Father falling on his knees before Jesus in prayer, now we're emphasizing praying with your Bible open, with the truth of God laid out before you, praying intelligently. Now, you can avail yourself of helps as well, counsel from trusted Christian friends who've been through what you've been through, good books um, that, and commentaries and things of that nature, but above all, your constant and final recourse is to the Word of God. You pray with your Bible open, engaged at the level of the mind, trusting that through the renewal of your mind in God's Word, your heart will be transformed and the problems will be exposed and then dealt with by our great physician. Praying alongside an intelligent engagement with God's Word will remind you of the truth and then further call you to believe it. You see... Brothers and sisters, no matter how advanced in religion we are, we are needy servants. We are desperately needy in our service to God. We can do nothing apart from His help, His grace, His instruction, His power. But His Word applied to us, to our hearts by His Spirit, is sufficient for everything we face for all things. And he is indeed faithful to provide what we need. He was faithful to explain to the disciples in our text exactly what was going on and exactly what they needed and how they were to get it. Therefore, we turn to him in faith, an informed faith shaped by the scriptures. What is the nature of that faith? In verse 20, Christ teaches his disciples that faith, uh, three things about faith. First, it's defined by his word. Second, that it's not about inherent power, like, oh, I just trust my faith, you know, as we hear in American culture so often, but it's rather about the object. I trust in God. I have faith in God and Christ Jesus who died for me, who paid the penalty for my sins. And thirdly, that by it, by this faith, and this is perhaps the most provocative aspect of what Jesus teaches here, by this faith, all Things are possible, even the moving of mountains. What do I mean by that? You can accomplish anything that he, by his word, commands you to do. Very important qualification there. Saves us from the health, wealth, prosperity gospel nonsense, doesn't it? I'm going to change illustrations here. Talked about doctors, and I'm going to talk about bakers. If you're a cook or a baker in our congregation, you mamas and papas who are always making food for your kids, 
If you're making your grandmother's famous dish, her cake, cookies, that casserole that you loved to have growing up and you want your kids to experience it too, when you're making that famous dish of this, that, or the other thing, where do you go for the recipe? Perhaps you have it locked in your memory. You've memorized it. Well, good for you, but I don't memorize recipes. Where I go for a favorite recipe is the cookbook. Might be a binder, might be a folder, might be a bound book, but I open it up, and Jocelyn does the same thing, and we follow the directions. Why do we do that? Because we know that the carefully recorded directions are the clear guide to producing the desired result. Well, faith is Christ's perfect dish. Faith is Christ's perfect dish, and his word defines it in all its elements. In this passage, there is something that we need to distinguish about what kind of faith Jesus is talking about as, we under, as we're seeking to understand what he's teaching his disciples about faith. Not only is, is faith generally uh, has those three parts being defined by the word, being about the object and not the inherent power, and then being able to accomplish all that which God purposes for it to accomplish, but we must distinguish between the charismatic faith, which is really being discussed in our passage, and then saving faith generally, distinguishing them yet recognizing the common thread and principles undergirding each. Now, charismatic faith is the specific gift granted to the apostles and those who ministered with the apostles. We frequently call them evangelists. In the early age, before the complete inscripturation, of God's Word. So before we have the Bible as the Bible, the closure of the canon, what is going on in the early church? There are charismatic gifts at play, gifts of prophecy and healing and tongues and of faith, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 9, and then also referring to it in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 2. This is the same charismatic gift that was imparted to the disciples in Matthew 10, 8, which I've already mentioned, namely, that they would be empowered through faith to cast out demons and to perform all sorts of wonders among the people. It's a specific gift that Jesus gives for a specific time and purpose. These gifts have ceased. We now have a greater gift in the inscripturated word of God, and this is sufficient for us. But these charismatic gifts have ceased, but the principle of believing to be true, that which God has said and promised to us for doctrine and ministry continues. So there's a principle that continues, even though the exact application of it is different now than it was then. Westminster Confession of Faith 14, paragraph 2, puts this really well, and I quote, um, A Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed, that is, by God in the word, for the authority of God himself speaking therein. Faith rests on God's authority and a recognition of it, believing to be true, whatever he says, for the authority of God expressed in the saying. You cannot understand this passage that we have before us and the whole moving mountains thing. You can't understand it. And the significance of Christ's hyperbolic statement, you will be able to move mountains. You will be able to pluck up a mulberry tree and plant it in the ocean, as he says elsewhere, without making this distinction and recognizing the common principle. And the idea is not that you can do whatever you want willy-nilly, not that you can name it and claim it 
and go after whatever as long as your faith is strong enough. No. The point here that Jesus makes is that you can do all things that God directs you to do, but you must not doubt his power, his authority, his clear word. Does God's word tell us to move mountains? No, it doesn't. That's not the point of this text. Does he tell us to name it and claim it, to get the Lamborghini, to get the delivery from cancer, to get the prodigal child back home? No, does not give us that specificity. But he does tell us to pray for things that we absolutely need. He does tell us to pray for particular things. And his word is our clear direction in this task of the Christian life. What are some of those things we are to pray for? Holiness, without which no one will see the face of God. we got to pray for renewed obedience, born of the Spirit, worked in our hearts. We pray that God would grant repentance to all those His people whom He has elect from eternity past. We pray that God would give us wisdom for life and faith, trusting that He will give it to us. So how do we strengthen this faith? This faith in His clear word. This is where verse 21 comes into play. Comment on the textual issue. There are two textual traditions undergirding our English Bibles. Uh, there's one tradition called the critical text, which is a bit newer vintage. And then there is the majority text, which is the Greek New Testament, which the majority of the church throughout its existence has had. In the majority tradition, verse 21 is included, but in the critical edition, which is based supposedly on older manuscripts, but which were discovered later. I know it's not confusing, right? In that tradition, this verse is dropped because they see it as something that was borrowed from Mark's gospel. And that's the point I want to make. Whether it's here or not actually has no material, makes no difference. Because Mark includes the same doctrine in his account of this same episode. Now, I tend to believe that this verse should be included in Matthew's gospel. I believe that's what we've received, and thus it's there. And it also doesn't contradict anything else. So I'm going to preach it as God's word, because I believe it is God's word. So what does it say? This kind, referring to the little boy's demon, does not go out, does not get exercised, isn't cast out, except by prayer and fasting. So, returning to the grandmother's recipe, what ingredients does she, uh, does she include to make a particular flavor pop? to make it her recipe? Uh, what what in ingredients make that flavor more pronounced than in somebody else's version of the same dish? Well, she would surely emphasize those special ingredients in her recipe. She would say, don't skimp out on the thyme. Don't hold back on the cinnamon or whatever it is. So too, Christ in verse 21 makes sure to tell his disciples what they need to include in order to strengthen their faith. In Ephesians chapter 6, it's the shield of faith that must be lifted up in spiritual combat to deflect the arrows of the evil one, the fiery darts of Satan, the tempter, as he attacks us in a full frontal assault. And here we have the training and conditioning program to strengthen ourselves for the lifting up of said shield, to prepare us for that battle that we might quench the fiery darts of the evil one. He tells his disciples to do what? To pray. 
and to pray earnestly, to pray fervently, urgently, with desperation, like the father they just witnessed in the public incident that they just observed. So where does fasting play into this? Well, fasting lends urgency. It lends intensity. It lends uh, even desperation to our prayers. Now, some of us have physical problems where we can't fast responsibly. But you can turn your physical difficulties and use that as your form of fasting to then lend urgency to your prayers. You already know what it is to be afflicted with all manner of physical ill. But those of us who have a, a relative complete health, Fasting is an affliction that we impose upon ourselves, controlling our bodies to then uh, stir up this intensity in our prayers because this is how important it is. More important than having food or drink at a particular meal, it is to earnestly come to the Lord for aid, to strengthen our faith, to remove from us the doubts. This is how to strengthen your faith, Jesus says. We began and ended on our knees before the King of glory. Now, our Roman Catholic friends, particularly this time of year, take fasting and view it in a a mechanistic way. Well, if I fast from this or that for Lent, that in and of itself will have some spiritual benefit. That's not the point of the passage. The point is that fasting makes our prayers more urgent, which then will increase our faith. That's the goal here. The shield of faith, not of fasting, is what is needed. This is a field hospital scenario. You know, I often think about what my grandfather experienced for that one day, and it shakes me up. I mean, it's just absolutely brutal conditions. But I was reading an account from the life and work of John L. Girardeau, the famous Southern Presbyterian minister who was a Confederate chaplain during the war. And he was there in Petersburg. And he was there during the siege, and he went around to the field hospitals, and he prayed with Union and Confederate soldiers at their deathbeds, at their side, pleading with them to embrace Christ if they hadn't yet done so, praying for their comfort and consolation as they approached their final gasping breath. I have no idea if John L. Girardeau encountered my great-great-great-grandfather. I suspect he didn't. But I hope that there was some faithful minister there who comforted Abraham Groff with the gospel, who reminded him of the gospel held forth by and in Christ Jesus, perhaps who even exhorted him along the lines of this passage, telling him that those called to follow Christ in life and in death through trial and difficulty, through triumph and success, whatever it is life hands you, those called to follow Christ must take him at his word by faith, trusting that he will deliver all those whom he has come to save. You know, in this life of spiritual warfare and treacherous pilgrimage on our journey home to heaven, there are way stations, there are field hospitals in which we encounter the great physician of our souls who attends to our needs. And in our passage today, as we've considered one such field hospital scenario, we recognize the peril of unbelief, and we've seen the action of Christian faith laid before the disciples, applied to them so that they might bear fruit in righteous living and service after his ascension. Therefore, listen to him. Listen to Christ here. Take him at his word. 
take his word to heart. Believe it, hold fast to it, rest upon it. Without faith, no one, it's impossible to please God. But God our Father delights, delights in those his children, his remnant, his faithful ones who love his word and live according to his word in the power of the Holy Spirit graciously given to his people, believing it without any doubting, remembering it always. Let us stand together for prayer. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this text and how it shows us the sympathy and kindness of the Savior and also his wisdom in granting to us instruction, rebuking not only the demons, but also attending our needs and supplying wisdom to us to address our ignorance and faithlessness. We pray, Lord, that you would impress this word on our hearts, that you would lead us in meditation, rightly considered and framed, and that we would treasure your testimony in our hearts. For the sake of Christ and his glory, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Antioch Presbyterian Church. For more information about Antioch, visit us at our website at antiochpca.com.